at most 25% of longevity is genetically determined. And what that means is 75% is determined by environment. And environment in general are things that we control. And diet goes under environment. So diet, activity, pollution, all that stuff goes under environment. And so we can control that. So 75% of your health, if you want to look at it that way, or more, is modifiable. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Matt Caberline. Dr. Caberline's research interests are focused on understanding biological mechanisms of aging in order to facilitate translational interventions that can promote health span and improve quality of life for people and companion animals. Dr. Caberline has published more than 250 scientific papers in the field of aging biology and has received several prestigious awards. Dr. Caberline is the founding director of the University of Washington Healthy Aging and Longevity Research Institute, the former director of the NIH Nathan Schock Center of Excellence in the Basic Biology of Aging, and the Biological Mechanisms of Healthy Aging Training Program at the University of Washington. And he's the former CEO and chair of the American Aging Association. Today on the show, we discuss what you can do to add quality years to your life, the top three things you must focus on for your overall health and longevity, why you have more control over your outcomes than you may think, testing protocols for aging, does fasting actually help with longevity, how to optimize your diet and exercise for longevity, Matt's opinion of biohacking as it relates to health and longevity, can you really reverse your biological age, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Dr. Matt Caberline to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. I'd love to just jump right in with the million-dollar question. Obviously, there's people who live to 100. I had somebody on the podcast recently who is over 102 years old, so it was a pleasure to talk with her. But I feel like there's a narrative now that you can almost like hack your age and you can do certain things to help you like live longer. I know you study longevity and aging. What is your take on all that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the way I would frame it is, first of all, it's not only about quantity of life, right? There's this quality component that's really important. And I think, you know, what we know for sure is that almost anybody can have a pretty significant impact on the quality of their years. Um, and I, and again, I think if you look at like the typical American, you know, most people are probably giving up 10 to 20 years of quality life simply because of poor lifestyle habits that, that are modifiable. So there's no question we can we can deal with that today. I think there's a likelihood that most people can gain additional years of life. Again, you know, even just through lifestyle modifications, maybe a decade of additional longevity. And I think then where it gets kind of speculative is given where the science is at now and where it's likely to go in the next 5, 10, 20 years, you know, how much beyond that can we accomplish? And that's an exciting time in the field because I think there are opportunities. There's the potential that the science of longevity or science of aging will actually give us new tools, new solutions to extend healthy longevity, health span and lifespan, you know, maybe quite significantly, but that, that that's a little bit more speculative at this point. What have you found in, in your research that tends to be like the biggest things that decrease people's lifespan? Like, is it diet? Is it exercise? Is it relationships? Like what, what destroys longevity? Yeah. I mean, you kind of hit on three, three of the big ones right there. Um, I mean, the reality is right. I think most of us are at least aware of the sort of risky lifestyle habits that can shorten lifespan. Smoking is sort of the classic example or, or drinking too much alcohol where there's no question that that will, uh, dramatically increase your risk of dying prematurely. I think where a lot of people maybe don't appreciate how significant the detrimental impacts can be are things like obesity, diabetes, sedentary lifestyle. Um, again, you know, for, I would say, and this is kind of sad, but, you know, given the trajectory that the average person is on, just looking across the, the general population in the United States, 
because of things like obesity and diabetes and sedentary lifestyle, again, most people are probably giving up 15 years or so of, of quality life. And, you know, and, and I, I think one of the things that makes this challenging is there is this probabilistic component to it. In other words, you know, just because you are obese, it doesn't, doesn't mean with 100% certainty that you're going to develop heart disease, premature cancer, diabetes, dementia, but your risk goes up quite dramatically. And, and so I think when we look at the population average, there's no question that, that poor nutrition in particular is, is that if I had to pick one thing, that's probably the thing that, that most people are falling down on. And there's a variety of reasons for that. It's just an unfortunate reality that in our culture, it is really, really hard to eat a healthy diet. It, it takes work. And I think most people either because they don't know what that means or they, they, they don't think that it's going to have a significant impact on their health or they're just not willing to, to do it. That's, that's where a lot of people fall down. Sedentary lifestyle is the, the, the kind of next one. And those are pretty close. Like I, I, I said, if I had to pick, I'd probably pick diet over exercise, but you know, ask me tomorrow and it might be a different answer. They're pretty close. As far as the diet part, I've heard two things, right? I've heard there's there's a camp that's like focused on the quality, like eliminate certain foods, reduce, you know, eating a lot of red meat, reduce eating certain thing, eating certain things. And then there's another camp that's like the biggest lever you can pull is weight loss, is reducing your caloric intake to, you know, not be obese, reduce your risk of diabetes. Where do you see how does all of that align with the research? Yeah. So I would say those two things are related, meaning that um it is much easier, I think, for most people to maintain a healthy weight if they are eating what I would consider a healthy diet. I think one of the challenges, though, is that, you know, what that means, healthy diet, I think we can give some general guidelines, but there isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all solution that's going to be optimal for everyone. So I tend to be pretty pragmatic, and I guess I would take sort of an 80-20 approach to this. How can we get 80% of the benefits, right, with 20% of the work in terms of diet? I think, you know, the the two things that most people uh, can do if they really want to, and it's not that hard once you actually dive into it, but it does take some habit modification, is take a look at what you're eating, cut out to the extent you can highly processed foods, right? I think that's that's number one. If it's something that is processed or highly processed, if you can, cut it out of your diet and then cut out the simple sugars. And, and this takes a little bit of learning. You have to kind of read the labels or do some research. But again, you know, there's this idea of shopping around the edge of the supermarket. That's not perfect. But again, that's 80% of the way there. Cut out the simple sugars, the highly processed foods, you're going to be in good shape. I tend to then say you need to, you need to, you need to try a few things and figure out what works for you, what helps control your appetite. For me personally, I found that eating a diet that is pretty high in protein makes it so I'm just not hungry. And I have no, no trouble maintaining a healthy body weight if I, if I do those three things. Cut out the, the highly processed foods, cut down on simple sugars, eat a lot of protein. I, get, I would say the fourth thing that I've done that really had a huge impact, and I know this is hard for people, they don't like to hear it, but get the alcohol out of the house. If you drink regularly at home, get the alcohol out of the house. Those are pretty much useless calories. And I actually think this is important to take 30 seconds to dive into because you'll hear this idea that moderate consumption of alcohol is beneficial to your health. There is some data to support that. So if you look at epidemiological studies, people who drink about one drink a day tend to have lower risk of, of what's called all-cause mortality of dying. But those populations where you see that are also populations that aren't in the middle of an epi obesity epidemic. So I think the problem is if you are struggling to maintain a healthy body weight and regularly consuming alcohol, that's in general detrimental. I think if you are eating a Mediterranean diet at a healthy body weight and you want to have one drink a day or maybe even two drinks a day, no problem. But for most people, that's not the case. So I think there's this misperception that, oh, a little bit of alcohol is good for me. And then it just kind of spirals out of control for a lot of people. With those epidemiological studies, were those people also exercising and eating a healthier diet? And if so, could that have been the reason that they're, they, they, they live longer and not necessarily the alcohol? So I don't think we can say with the, with, that that's that that's a hundred percent the case, right? So the way that these studies are typically done is you look across the population, right? So you're, first of all, you're sort of stuck with all comers in, in many cases. 
Um, and in those in those studies, it is the case. It's called it's what's called a J-shaped curve. And and what that means is if you look at the if you think of a, a plot of risk of dying as a function of alcohol consumption at zero, it's a little bit higher risk of dying, and then it drops down about one drink. And then once you get above one or two drinks a day, it shoots up, meaning your, your risk of dying goes up really dramatically. So there is this effect there that, that is real in many of these studies where at one drink a day-ish, there's a little bit of a, a decrease in, in all-cause mortality. But those studies are typically done in populations that are that are consuming like a Mediterranean diet, for example. So I would speculate that if we were to do a study like that in the current population in the United States, we might not see that that benefit from one drink a day. And this is my personal experience. I, I can't actually point to data to, to support this with 100% certainty. My personal experience from talking to lots of people and knowing lots of people is that telling yourself you're going to drink one drink a day pretty soon turns into two drinks a day, pretty soon turns into three drinks a day. So all things being equal, here's what I would say. All things being equal, just don't have alcohol in the house if you can help it. If you want to go out for drinks with friends once in a while, you're at a conference, you want to have a beer, not a big deal. But I think a lot of this is about habits. And, and so if you are at an unhealthy weight right now, I think cre putting yourself in the best situation for success, which means getting a bunch of the crap out of the house, uh, is really your best opportunity to then move the needle in the right direction. And so, again, I know it's hard for people, but if you can just make that commitment, even if you just say, okay, for the next six months, I'm just not going to have any alcohol in the house. Develop these new habits, get yourself on a road to a better, what I would call health span trajectory, and then reevaluate in six months and see where you're at. There was a lot of talk like years ago about red wine being good for your health and being good for the heart, I think mainly because of Reservatrol. And then I've also seen in more recent years that you'd have to drink like an excessive amount of red wine to actually get the amount of Reservatrol that would be beneficial for heart health. I forget the exact amount, but it was like a, insane. It was like a, a thousand probably, bottles a day. Yeah, if you want to do right. what the mice got. Yeah. <laughs> so what are your, what are your thoughts on all that? So a couple of things to say. Um, number one, most of the data that's out there suggests that it's not, it's not red wine in particular. It's, it's probably actually the ethanol in the alcohol that, that may confer some benefits for, for heart disease. And that, you know, people don't really know why there's, there's, it, it could be stress reduction. It could be that the the, the alcohol itself, the ethanol, actually um, solubilizes some of the molecules that become sticky in the in the the plaques. Um, nobody really knows for sure, but it's probably not red wine in particular. The other thing to say is that whole resveratrol story. This is very unfortunate because this was this was um, what almost everybody in the longevity field today would agree was a massively flawed study. Those data have not been reproducible. Um, and that led, I think it harmed a lot of people because it got presented as this very appealing story that red wine is healthy for you. And I think it led a, pop, a lot of people to overconsume alcohol, you know, because they had this idea that was planted in their head that there's this, this miracle molecule in red wine that promotes longevity. We now know that science was flawed at a minimum. Um, and, 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 and so it, it just hasn't held up. So there really is no data. In fact, I would argue it's even more than that. The meta-analyses that have been done clearly show that resveratrol does not promote longevity. If you look at the average across dozens, maybe hundreds of studies that have ever been published, the effect is a little bit less than zero for resveratrol for longevity. So you know, I think that it's just unfortunate that that sort of got misrepresented and 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 in the scientific literature and then in the media in a way that probably harmed a lot of people. I want to dive more into to back into diet. And I guess as far as, you know, people making better choices, like you, you said, a lot of it comes down to habit formation. You talked about like one of the things that you recommend or you've done for yourself is keeping like alcohol out of your house specifically, right? And then focusing on limiting processed foods, getting enough um, protein in and, and not having the alcohol were like three of the biggest things you focus on. What are some ways that you found to be effective from like a nutrition, like a dietary pattern standpoint to helping you like improve your nutrition habits long-term? Yeah. I, the other thing that I, that I would put in that bucket is again, um, foods that have a lot of added sugars to them. I think that's sort of a, 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 a really, um, easy way. I mean, it's not easy necessarily. It takes some discipline, but, but it's an easy way to cut, 
you know, garbage out of your, out of your diet. So I think, um, you know, that one of the things that I've done, and I, this isn't for everybody, but I've done it and I found it to be pretty, um, uh, impactful. And I know a lot of people who have, who have tried this is continuous glucose monitoring. And so these are these devices that, um, you know, are, have been used for diabetics for many years. They're just, they're about the size of a quarter and they go usually right on the back of your arm and, um, it'll sync to your smartphone and it'll show you your blood glucose sort of in real time. And, um, and one of the reasons why I think that's really impactful is you get this instant feedback when you eat something, you can see what happens to your blood glucose and you can see how different foods affect your physiology. So I've learned something every time that I've done it. But the, the first time I did it, one of the things I learned is that bagels cause my blood glucose to spike. I mean, they go, it goes through the roof. And, and, you know, that's maybe not shocking to people who have done this before, but I think the average person doesn't necessarily appreciate that, at least for some people, depending on your genetic makeup, perhaps, um, bread will have a very, very significant impact on your blood glucose level. Now, is a blood glucose spike necessarily bad? No, not necessarily. It's more the kinetics of how fast the glucose goes up and how fast it comes down. But I, I, I point this out because for me, um, that experience of seeing that massive blood glucose spike to the point where the alarm went off on my phone. So it kind of had this psychological impact as well. Um, you know, it was sticky. It stuck with me. Okay. The next time there's a bagel in the break room, I'm going to think about it. Do, do I really want that bagel? Is it, you know, is that something that I really need to put in my body? So I think some things like that, that can, can have people think about what they're eating a little bit more can be impactful. The other thing I'd point to is um, tracking your food. I think this is probably, if I had to pick like one thing, if you could actually get everybody to do this for two weeks, I think it's such a huge learning experience. If you actually, with some level of precision, track all the food you put in your body and what the nutritional composition and calorie composition of that food is, you will learn a lot. You'll learn portion sizes, how many calories are in a portion size, What's the composition of all the foods I'm eating in terms of, you know, simple carbohydrates, fiber, different types of fat, protein. Um, and you'll remember that. So I think, I think knowledge is, is quite powerful, but sticky knowledge. And that's why I think like the CGM or the nutritional tracking, the food tracking are, are a couple of things that really stick with people. And so there are a bunch of apps out there that do it. I really like my fitness pal, but you know, that's just because that's what I have experience with it. I, I like that one because you can take a picture of the barcode and usually it'll automatically populate right into your app. But I think knowing what you eat and, and also knowing to some, with some degree of precision, what your calorie expenditure every day is, is super, super powerful in terms of losing or, or maintaining weight. And, you know, I think, again, getting back to my sort of pragmatic approach to health, too often you'll hear this nonsense out there about, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not really how much you eat, it's what you eat. And, you know, to, to sort of first principles, if you eat more calories than you burn, you're going to gain weight. If you eat less calories than you burn, you're going to lose weight. It's not that difficult. And so getting beyond that, I think, is just going to distract people and it's going to, it's going to, going to cause people to make mistakes. Just it, It's really simple. Try to make the amount you consume less than you burn or equal to what you burn if your goal is to lose weight or maintain weight. I want to talk about epigenetics for a second because you know as you're, you're sharing some of this and you're talking about people developing better habits and learning to improve their diet quality to increase their, their lifespan and inc increase longevity, there might be cert certain people listening to this and they, they're looking around them and maybe people in their family, diabetic, heart conditions, heart attacks, strokes, stuff like that. And they're like, my genes are completely like flawed. Like I'm, there's no way that I can improve my own health. And to be honest, I felt that way growing up where I saw members of my family who were sick and I often heard, well, you just, you might have bad genes, bad genes, bad genes. And now I think it's confirmed that we have the ability to change our health outcomes, even just from what we're talking about here, based on lifestyle modification. What is your view on epigenetics and how do you convince somebody who's listening to this that sees people around them and their family that you know are, are very unhealthy? How do you convince them that they can actually change? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it is it is true, right, that genetics play a role in your risk of developing disease. And I think in particular, genetics can play a role in your 
body's response to this to the to the same sort of diet exercise things like that so there's no question there are some people who can eat a crappy diet and they won't develop obesity right because they have a certain genetic makeup that's true that's actually pretty rare but that is true but if you look at longevity the data are pretty clear and we can we can we can look at the, imp the, the, the impact of genetics on longevity a few different ways. I think twin studies are one interesting way to do this. But all of the methods that people have used suggest that, you know, it's probably at most 25% of longevity is genetically determined. And what that means is 75% is determined by environment. And environment in general are things that we can control. And diet goes under environment. So diet, activity, pollution, all that stuff goes under, goes under environment. And so we can control that. So 75% of your health, if you want to look at it that way, or more, is modifiable. And so I think that's a good message for people to understand. The other thing I do is it's actually a very easy thought experiment, you know, obesity in, in particular, right? So if there are, you will sometimes hear this idea that, well, you know, some people have a genotype that's, that, that causes them to become obese. And, and that's not true. There are people who have gen genetic makeup that, that makes it easier for them to become obese. But if you look back 50 years from now, if you just go look at pictures of the average American population 50 years ago, sorry, 50 years ago, so let's say 19, 1973, um, if you look at pictures from 1973 and you look at the people in those pictures, you don't see obese people. Their genes have not changed. So our genetic makeup as a population does not change in hundreds of years. It changes in tens of thousands of years. So that is all environmental. It is not your fault if you're obese. And I, I think that's, that's where I think this message gets a little bit um, diluted sometimes. I think that given our culture and our society, it is extremely challenging for, for most people to maintain a healthy weight. It's not impossible, but it's not easy. But it is also the, not the case that you have a genetic makeup that means you are going to get obese, you are going to get diabetes, unless you're very, very rare, less than 1%. That is all controllable. And there is no question that if we, if we instituted controls, I'm not suggesting this, okay, nobody, nobody, you know, write me nasty emails. I'm not saying that we, we, you know, put people in a box and feed them once a day, but there is no question that if we instituted controls on what people ate, we could cure the obesity epidemic. It would not exist. So it is to some extent, a reflection of what is out there in our culture and our environment and choices that people make. And you have a choice whether to get sick, and whether to, to develop all of these diseases that go along with an unhealthy lifestyle. I think a lot of it too comes down to, to stress. Like, I mean, people are just constantly stressed and, and food becomes like the mechanism to help solve their problems. And, you know, people emotionally eat or people grow up in environments that are super stressful and maybe they're not taught the importance of, of what to eat or they don't have access to it or whatever. In the context of longevity, how does stress play a part in all that? Yeah, I mean, stress is complicated for a couple of reasons. Stress, first of all, means a lot of different things. So there are a whole bunch of different types of stress, right? And, and there, are, there are internal stresses within the cells of our bodies. There's external stresses that could be, you know, things like temperature, or I mentioned air pollution, but then there's psychological stress and emotional stress. And so it's just complicated because we kind of put one word to mean a whole bunch of different things. And then the impact of stress on longevity is also complicated because there are many cases where a little bit of stress is actually beneficial. This is concept called hormesis, where a little bit of stress actually turns up what are protective responses in the body and then promotes health, better health outcomes. But once you get past the tipping point, obviously then stress becomes detrimental. And especially when stress impacts things like nutritional choices, the energy that you've got to go exercise, for example, your ability to sleep. We haven't really talked about sleep. Sleep ties into the biology of aging and longevity clearly, and poor sleep quality can have a negative impact on, on healthy aging. So once stress becomes detrimental for, for those sorts of things, um, then absolutely it can have a negative impact on, on your likelihood of developing age-related diseases and your health outcomes as you get older. Um, you know, what to do about stress, you know, that's a, that, that's, that's, that's a very, very challenging problem. And again, I think, um, 
you, you know, it ties into what I was talking about before, which is that unfortunately, given the society that we live in today, it, this sort of uh, very unhealthy, high calorie, good tasting food is everywhere. And it's so easy if you're feeling stressed out to make the choice, okay, I'm going to, you know, default to food as an adaptive mechanism or alcohol. We talked about alcohol as well. So, I, I mean, I look, that's, that, that's not something I'm naive enough to think that I can solve other than to say, I think, again, a lot of this comes back to education, people understanding the impact that these things have, um, and then being willing to take action and, and try to develop new habits. And, you know, next time you're feeling stressed out, instead of going and getting a Big Mac or whatever, take a walk, right? Go lift weights, what, do something active, right? Um, I think that it is, in fact, I know it is possible for people to make those choices, develop those new habits and get themselves on a better health span trajectory. We're talking about a lot of stuff that you said, like is backed up by research and science as far as how to improve um, lifespan, how to increase longevity, how to, to essentially, I guess, reverse aging, you know, to reverse aging. There's also a lot of information out there and biohacking has become quite popular over the years. What are, what, is, what are some things that you see online? Or I know you're pretty active on Twitter or, or X, I guess it's called now. What are some things that you see that are just not backed up by science that have become popular? Sure. So let me just take a step back and, and, and talk for a minute about this term reversing aging. Because again, I think this is a term that, you know, for better or worse, I would say it's for worse, has sort of made it into the sort of vernacular of this community. Um, I, I want to be clear that that there is no evidence, scientific evidence right now that we can reverse aging in the sense of taking an old person or an old animal and making them biologically younger again. Okay, what we can do is improve health and reduce mortality risk, reduce risk of death or reduce risk of developing diseases. That shouldn't shock anybody. We've known this for decades, right? Lower blood pressure, you're going to reduce somebody's risk that they're going to die you know, over the next 10 years. So that's, is that reversing aging? If you lower your blood pressure, did you get biologically younger? Probably not. And I would say there's no scientific evidence to support that. So I just want to make that point because unfortunately you hear people who should know better <laughs> using sloppy terminology that I think misleads the, the non-scientific public. So no evidence that we can make, make people or animals younger yet. I'm not saying but, it's impossible. But we can prevent, but, but I guess we can prevent like disease, right? From You can reduce your risk of developing right. disease and reduce your risk of dying. And again, I just want to make the point, we've known that for decades, right? I talked about blood pressure, stop smoking. That's another way to do it, right? If you're obese, lose weight. That's another way to do it. So I think that, or take medications for your diabetes, right? So again, we can improve health. Absolutely. Um, I just, it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but I do think it's important that people not think that we can make people younger or get turned off on the field because they're like, well, that sounds like snake oil, right? Because people are using these terms that are not really legitimate. Okay. So then, so your question was in the sort of, you know, longevity community slash biohacker piece of that community, what are some things that maybe don't have as much scientific validity to them that, that people may be, may be doing now. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Okay. So uh, the first thing I would say is this, this area is very much a gray area in the sense that it's very hard to say that something absolutely doesn't work, at least from a scientific perspective. So as a scientist, it's very hard to prove something doesn't work. You have to go and do dozens of studies or hundreds of studies, like we talked about with resveratrol, to get to the point where you can say with some level of you know 99% certainty, resveratrol does not affect longevity. That hasn't been done for most of these things. So I think what I can say is you know, some of the things where there's less evidence to support beneficial effects, um, you know, a lot of the supplements, for sure, uh, fall into that category. I know people are taking, you know, some people are taking stacks of dozens of supplements. There's actually very little in the supplement space where there is a lot of evidence for longevity. Some of these things, though, there is some evidence for health, right? And that may or may not translate to lifespan, but at least for certain people, there's likelihood of health benefits. So I would put, you know, fish oil supplements in that category. Is that necessarily going to make you live longer? Probably not, but there's absolutely a portion of the population who are who can benefit from that. Or vitamin D, right? I live in Seattle. 
I didn't know this until I went and got blood work done that I was vitamin D deficient. So I took take a vitamin D supplement. So I think there are some things like that um, that fall into that category. It's also, the other thing I would say is there's a risk reward calculation that needs to come into play here. Things like vitamin D, fish oil, very unlikely to cause problems. So I'm not so worried about that. Some of these things though, like, you know, the sort of more edgy, edgy things, you know, the, like for example, and please, nobody listening, please don't go do this. But, you know, there are people who are doing gene therapy on themselves, right? And, and you know, that has the potential to really go catastrophically wrong. I would, uh, one of the things that I would kind of put in that bucket is stem cell therapies, right? So, and the only reason I say that is because the stem cell therapies are not particularly regulated. And so a lot of times you don't really know what is being put in your body or where those stem cells came from. And so I do believe that there are some studies in laboratory animals, for example, that exogenous stem cells can actually have some pretty interesting potential benefits in the context of longevity or at least healthy aging. But because it hasn't really been regulated uh, in human medicine, it's very difficult to know what you're getting. And so I worry about that. So that's one of those things that I would put in that bucket of, you know, probably not unless you, unless you have a high degree of certainty that your offshore medical tourism clinic um, is doing it right. I would be very careful about stuff like that. Um, the other thing though, that I think is in, important to maybe say, and, and, you know, there are some of these, these sort of high profile influencers who have come out with their, you know, their, their, their protocols for longevity. I would say any longevity protocol that has more than like five or six things on it is way past the point of diminishing returns. Like we've already talked about the big things that will get you most of the way there. And I would just say, if you haven't got the foundation, if you haven't taken care of your diet, gotten yourself to a healthy weight, exercise regularly, got your sleep down, you know, you feel emotionally fulfilled and connected, taking these supplements probably isn't going to do much for you. So, so I would just say, get the 80% part taken care of first. That's what's really going to move the needle. And then you can worry about, about some of this other stuff. And, and unfortunately, I think these influencers kind of feel like they have to be, come up with something new every week. You know, oh, this week it's saunas. Next week, it's going to be ice plunges. You know, is that going to move the needle for most people? If you're if you're obese and you have diabetes, no, it's not going to take care of that first before you worry about the other 20%. But in the case of something like we talked about like hormesis, which I think is like essentially like using stress, I think to your advantage, right? I mean, at least for me, I mean, this is, I guess, totally anecdotal, but I found that cold plunges and saunas have helped me manage my stress better because I'm doing something that's challenging. I get in there and I'm like, this sucks. But then I get out and I'm like, I'm so glad that I did that. Then I get better over time. And and then that like makes me feel better. And again, that could be purely anecdotal. Um, but do you think in that context where somebody is just doing it for something like hormesis or to challenge themselves like every single day, do you think it could be beneficial? Yeah, a couple of things I would say there. One is absolutely. So I mean, I think finding out what works for you and motivates you is is absolutely a big, a big part of this, right? So so, so, so yes, uh, I guess I shouldn't have been so dismissive about saunas and, and cold plunges. No, no, right? it's all but, good. But I, I do understand what I, you're saying. I do think it's important not to expect that that's going to be a fix, right? If you don't take care of the other stuff, if it helps you great. The other thing I would say is, and I think this is where the supplements are interesting too. Placebo effect is hugely impactful, right? And so I think there are, there are probably many of these supplements that actually have benefits for people, not because the supplements themselves are doing anything, but because psychologically we believe that they're doing something for us. So placebo effect, and I would almost put potentially, you know, sauna and cold plunges in, potentially some of the effects are in that category, right? You believe that it's pushing you and it's making you stronger and it's making you healthier. I think it can have that effect, whether or not the actual stress itself is having the effect. The last thing I will say about stress though, is, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword. And this is where the hormesis piece gets a little challenging is in every hormesis experiment that's been done, what you see is at some level of stress, there's a benefit, but if you push it a little bit too far, you fall off the cliff. And so that's the, that's the risk you run with, with trying to get hormesis just, just right. What I'm hearing you say is like people who say, Hey, I got my, my, my age, my biological age tested 
for instance, and it says that I'm like 10 years younger than my chronological age, that's, there's no science to, to, to back that up, right? So I wouldn't say that. Here, here's what I would say is, so most of these biological age tests are measuring only one thing. Usually it's what's called methylation, which is an epigenetic mark. Yeah. So, so that's one thing that changes with age. There are lots of things that change with age. And what these methylation marks have been, been shown to, to be useful for in what some people call biological age is it's a better predictor of mortality or sometimes disease, but let's just say mortality because that's what most of these have been trained on. So it's a better predictor of your risk of dying than your chronological age alone. Okay. That's useful, but it's not particularly useful because they're not very precise. And there are lots of other things we can look at that are probably better predictors of your risk of dying than just how many birthdays you've had. For example, do you have diabetes? If the answer is yes, your risk of dying is higher than somebody of the same chronological age who doesn't have diabetes. We didn't need a biological age test to, to tell you that. So, so I think that's where I, it gets a little bit confusing. I do think these biological age tests, the ones that are precise enough, can be a, a useful handle on where you are in your current health status at the moment. I think the problem right now is that these direct-to-consumer tests are not regulated and they're not validated. And so you really have no idea whether the test that you're taking is accurate in any way. And these companies really have no incentive to be honest about it. So I think that's where it's it's kind of interesting how some the same people can be very suspicious of companies in certain realms and then completely trusting of companies in other realms. And I would just say these companies that are selling biological age tests have no incentive to tell you if their biological age test isn't consistent or precise or accurate. And if they're trying to sell you something and give you a biological age test, I'd be very, very skeptical. If they're trying to say, you took our biological age test, here's your biological age. Oh, and by the way, buy these supplements from us and your biological age score will go down. I'd be very, very skeptical of that. What are your thoughts on fasting as it relates to longevity? So this is really interesting. So if you look at the the, the data, and I'm going to start with just the just the data and nothing more. This comes mostly from laboratory animals, rodents in particular, mice. Fasting in the absence of caloric restriction basically does nothing to longevity. There might be a small effect, but it's tiny on the order of a few percentage points. You compare that to caloric restriction, which can increase lifespan 50, 60% if you restrict calories enough. So fasting plus caloric restriction, big impact on longevity in laboratory mice, Fasting without caloric restriction, basically no impact. Interesting thing is if you do caloric restriction without fasting, you lose about half of the effect. So some of the effect from caloric restriction requires a fasted period, but a fasted period, if you just overeat when you're not fasting, basically does nothing. That's, the la that's what the laboratory data tells us. In humans, it's obviously more complicated, right? First of all, we don't even know if caloric restriction on average is going to be beneficial for people. Here's what I would say. Here's my take on fasting in people. If fasting is a useful strategy for you to lose or maintain, a, lose, lose weight if you need to lose weight or maintain a healthy body weight, if, if that's how you, if that helps you maintain a healthy body weight, it's probably a net win. Do it. If you are expecting to get a longevity benefit from fasting, there's really no data to support that. And here's where my concern comes in. There are two places where I think fasting is potentially harmful for some people. One is body composition. So if you are practicing fasting and not doing any sorts of resistance training, there's a very good chance you will lose lean mass, which is problematic as we get older. You want to maintain muscle mass as you get older. So I would at least at a minimum get a DEXA every six months and figure out if your body composition is going the wrong direction. I'd put bone mineral density under that as well. The other place is psychological consequences. Um, I, I personally have known lots of people who've dabbled with different types of caloric restriction, and I've seen people go down a path and look, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not diagnosing anyone. My perception is that they struggled with some psychological side effects from fasting or other types of caloric restriction. Humans are funny animals, and we are in this environment where, you know, we're if we're abstaining from something that has a psychological consequence. So again, I would just say, pay attention to yourself. And if you are developing, you know, something that might look like an eating disorder because of fasting, stop fasting. It's, you got to do what works for you. And like, I, th I think you're totally right where, um, you see so many people where they just, 
they, they don't eat enough throughout the day. And then that has like diminishing returns because the very thing that they want is they they're, they're fasting so they can reduce their body fat percentage. Right. And then, you know, look leaner, look more athletic or whatever. But, but then when you, le- when you lose muscle mass, it just defeats the purpose. Yeah. And can we, can we double click on that for a second? Cause I think there's a really important additional message here. It's not only fasting, but there are these new, the weight loss drugs, the GLP one agonists, Wegovi and Munjaro and, um, and they work, right? They do absolutely help people. Some people lose weight. They cut down on appetite, but there's a real concern that if you're eating, even if you're eating less, if you're eating a low quality diet, the consequences of that, again, on body composition, bone mineral density, lean mass over years could be quite detrimental. And so again, I think fasting is one example, but there are these drugs now that can help with appetite control as well. It's even more important to eat a higher quality diet if you're eating less, if you want to maintain your health, maintain a positive body composition that's going to set you up for success down the road. And again, I would personally say pair it with resistance training for sure to do everything you can to maintain lean body mass and bone mineral density. So I'd love to double click into the resistance training side of things because I know we've, we've touched, we've spoken a lot about diet as one of the big rocks when it comes to longevity. Exercise obviously um, is, is right there. And I feel like exercise online at least doesn't get talked about as much because people can't really argue about the benefits of exercise. Like we all know it's beneficial, right? Yeah, you, you'd be surprised. There are some of my colleagues who want to argue about that, but I agree with you. Right. I don't get it. <laughs> but in the context of exercise, you know, for years, you heard people say to do cardiovascular exercise for heart health, endurance, um, lung capacity, stuff like that. And then now there's been this massive surge in resistance training, which I love because I'm a, I'm a meathead at heart. I mean, I like to run, but I'm a meathead at heart where it's like resistance training for longevity. You got to have more muscle. You got to be able to reduce your risk of injuries, all that stuff. What are some of the big rocks within the exercise space that are important for people to focus on when it comes to longevity? Yeah. So again, I think, I, I think just to be precise here, the, um, the role of exercise in, in longevity is complicated because again, if you go back to the laboratory studies, which is where a lot of this starts, it's a little bit less clear there how big of an impact exercise has on longevity in, let's say, mice in the laboratory. I think that's mostly because it's very hard to do rigorous exercise studies in mice, particularly resistance training. If you think about how do we get a mouse to lift weights, like that's a real challenge. So I think that you'll see people point to this and say, well, there's not a lot of evidence that exercise slows aging. And I would say that's mostly because the mouse models are, are not very good. Here's what I would say in, in people. Again, let's start from pragmatic uh, a pragmatic position, which is some exercise is better than none, right? So first thing is, I don't care what you do, get out there and do something if, you've got, if you're living a sedentary lifestyle. Whatever you find easiest to do, go do it. But I would say if you start to prioritize like what, what types of exercise give you different benefits, I would say probably the right answer is a diversity of types of exercise is best. But I would say everyone should have some component of resistance training in their exercise regimen. And I think resistance training can look like it can, it can look like different things to different people. My preference is, you know, get in a gym and lift weights, right? Free weights better than machines, right? That's my personal preference. And I think there's some, but, but, but do whatever works for you. If it's push-ups, pull-ups, body weight, whatever. I think the, the key there is you, you want to do something that is going to, if you're, depending on how old you are, if you're, you know, in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even build lean mass, strengthen your joints, right? Maintain bone mineral density so that we're all going to get to the point where it's going to be difficult. It's going to start by being difficult to maintain lean mass, and then it's going to become impossible, right? You want to start with as much lean mass as you reasonably can, I would say, without you know, taking steroids, <laughs> but as much lean mass as you reasonably can, your function, it, the higher your function is when it starts to decline, the better off you're going to be when it starts to decline. So that's the rationale. And we know that resistance training has positive impacts, not only on muscle function, strength, movement, but bone quality, right? And if you look in elderly people, fractures are a, a huge problem, right? You, older people fall down, they get a fracture, and once that happens, their risk of mortality skyrockets. 
So I think the double benefit of maintaining functionality of your muscles and your bones, you know, makes it just a no brainer that everybody should be doing this. And I, and I'm going to say DEXA again, I mentioned, I mentioned a DEXA. I really think it's useful for most people to get a DEXA once a year. So you know where you're at, especially in terms of your bone density, but you'll also get an indirect measurement of your lean mass. And you can actually see how you're progressing over, over time. So that if you, if you are towards the lower end, you know, you got to take action. You got to, you got to move, you got to get it done. Um, I think that's, that's, that's important and valuable, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I would say, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's particularly useful to try to tell people what specific type of resistance training they should be doing, at least, you know, maybe not to start, but just say you should be doing something and you should be doing it regularly a few times each week. And you should be tracking how much muscle you have, how strong your bones are and how functional you are. But I would also say, you know, if you, if you just know in your heart, you're not going to be able to stick with going to a gym and lifting weights three times a week because you absolutely hate it. Find a different way to do your resistance training, right? It doesn't have to be, again, you got to, it's got to be something you're going to be able to stick with, right? I think that's the other piece that's, that, that, that sometimes people fall down because they commit to doing this initially, but it's something that, that just isn't realistic for them to stick with for the long run. This is for the rest of your life. So you got you to find something that's going to work for you at least for a few years and then modify it as you go. There's been a big surge lately in the talks of like zone two cardio. Um, what are your thoughts on like you, you know utilizing zone two cardio to in, in, increase your lifespan? Yeah. So again, not much evidence for long. Well, okay. Let me just say that um, there is correlative evidence, right? That that uh, VO two max, for example, is a predictor of mortality. Lots of things are predictors of mortality. So I don't put a lot of faith in the idea that, you know, I'm going to prioritize, you know, VO2 max because that's going to make me live longer. Again, I would take a step back. Everybody's got to take a look at where they're at right now, right? If you are sort of already at a very high level in terms of your fitness, sure. Then maybe you want to prioritize how many minutes do I spend in zone two and interval training and all of that to try to get your VO2 max as, as high as you possibly can. For most people, that's really not the place to start. For most people, the place to start is move regularly, do some resistance training, some cardiovascular training, and give yourself some realistic metrics to, to shoot for. If you know trying to target a certain number of minutes in zone two is helpful to you, by all means do it, but that's not essential. And that's really not what's going to move the needle for most people in, in my view. So personally, I don't, I don't personally worry about that. I don't, I don't try to target, you know, a certain amount of time in zone two or try to target a certain amount of time doing, you know, high intensity interval training, but I do try to do a diversity of different types of activity. So I prioritize resistance training. You know, I do that religiously three to four times a week. Uh, I do a diversity, like I don't, I don't do a set routine. I do a diversity of different types of, of weightlifting, but I prioritize that. And then I go out and do different stuff. I'll go play basketball. I'll do an elliptical. My wife and I will go do stairs. Um, so, you know, go hiking. We live in a beautiful place up here in the Pacific Northwest with lots of hiking. So, so I think you got to figure out what works for you. That works for me. And I don't feel like I need to be very particularly regimented in the number of minutes I spend doing a certain amount of activity, because I know for me in the long run, that's not going to work. You mentioned DEXA scan and, and that being a good thing for people to get, you know, once a year to, to see where they're at from a body composition standpoint, bone uh, mineral density standpoint, and also it to be you know, just helpful to see like how you're, I guess, aging, right? What are some other things that you think people should focus on some other markers they should pay attention to? I mean, I guess just to make sure that they're aging gracefully. Yeah. So I, I would say the other kind of low hanging fruit here, and, and it's, it, I, I recognize that there is a socioeconomic component here where not everybody has great health care, great health insurance, or the financial flexibility to go pay for stuff that insurance won't cover. Um, but if you, if it's within your capacity to do that, I think the other low hanging fruit here is get a comprehensive blood panel, right? So the, the blood work that is done through your, through a typical primary care is very basic and doesn't capture most of what you probably want to know. Unfortunately, primary care in the United States sucks. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that or well, not very many people. 
So I think there are some I think there are some comprehensive blood pa- blood panels out there that can give you a lot more information than you're going to get from a standard CBC chem. Hormones, I think, are one place to look. I think you know a lot of people have, and I'm talking about the sex hormones now: estrogen, testosterone, uh, FSH, LSH, all that stuff. Um, I think a comprehensive hormone panel. Obviously, you need a doc who can interpret it for you. Although, let's be honest, Doctor Google's pretty good these days. Um, I think that I think there's a lot of people who have hormone imbalances who don't know it, and that contributes to. So, first of all, that's probably caused in part by poor lifestyle choices, but it also contributes to your likelihood that you're going to to develop diabetes and obesity if your if your sex hormones are all out of whack from where they're supposed to be. Um, heavy metals are another thing, right? So are you, you know, we all should eat more fish, but you know what, if you have too much mercury in your blood, you probably shouldn't eat more fish. So knowing if you have any heavy metal toxicities, I mentioned vitamin D, that's a really easy thing to get from blood work. If you're deficient in vitamins, you can fix that, right? These are all things that are fixable and it's easy to know, and it's not that expensive. So, you know, we're probably talking, I don't know, $250. Um, there are a bunch of places out there where you can get blood work online. Ageless RX is in the longevity community, Ulta Labs. And I don't have a financial stake in either of those. These are just companies that I'm familiar with where you can order blood work online, get the data back and you know, take it to your primary care doc if you have a good relationship with your primary care doc. So that's one thing I would point to that a lot of people can find out in advance if you've got a problem that's that's actionable and in many ways, that will make it easier for you if you if you choose to make a commitment to a healthier lifestyle. If you get these other biological parameters that are maybe out of out of balance, in balance, that'll make it easier for you to see the benefits or to see the gains from the lifestyle modifications. So that's one place that I would point to that that's that's pretty easy. A couple hundred dollars, you know. And I get it. I, it's funny because I've talked to a lot of people who blow, you know, $500 on nothing, on a fancy dinner. But if you tell them, why don't you go get this comprehensive blood panel done? It's $250. They're like, well, my insurance won't pay for it. Why should I pay for it? And I'm like, because it's your health. And that's the most important asset that you have. But there's this, you know, we've been sort of, we've been sort of trained that healthcare isn't something we should really have to pay for. Some, at least some people have. I'd say get out of that, get out of that mindset because the healthcare system is broken. It's a disease care system. You need to take initiative and ownership of your own health. And I would say thousand bucks a year even is well worth it if you can keep yourself from getting sick and, and give yourself an extra 10 years of healthy longevity. I want to talk about something that um, sometimes, I mean, I don't think it gets overlooked, but I know we talk about diet and exercise a lot when it comes to longevity. And now there's been, I mean, more information coming out about the importance of relationships and fulfillment when it comes to longevity. Because again, like we talked earlier about, it's all about quality and not about quantity. And if you're, you know, essentially just by yourself and just eating healthy and just exercising, that's all you do. And you don't have any kind of social life. I mean, it's There's going to be diminishing returns, right? I mean, over the, the course of, of long-term health, what are your thoughts on relationships and why do like, be, why do like being in fulfilling relationships, why are they so important for, for longevity? Yeah. So, so a couple of things I would, I would say there, one is this, this is um, one of the, this is probably the most challenging. If, if, if we kind of think, I kind of think about four pillars, everybody's got their pillars, right? There's somewhere between four and nine. So, so, so I sort of think about four and I would put, you know, social connectedness um, in that fourth pillar. If we say, you know, nutrition, so, so eat, move, sleep, connect, right? Those are my four pillars, eat, move, sleep, connect. So I put that in the connect, the connect pillar. And that's the hardest one from a scientific perspective to nail down. I would say, first of all, we don't really know. (laughs) We don't really know biologically why that is so important, but the data are pretty clear, right? And, And you can look at this again, a variety of different ways. You can look at perceived quality of life and you can look at mortality risk, but, but the data are clear that people who have connected relationships with other human beings tend to live longer, be healthier and feel better about their quality of life. So it is real. And I mean, I think, I think the reality is, look, humans are social animals, right? We evolved to be social animals. And so that human connection for most people is going to be extremely important to your overall 
health, quality of life. There's also the kind of obvious stuff, which is that if you have, you know, a significant other that you live with and something happens to you, they're more likely to see that happen to you and get you help. Whereas if you're living alone, you might just die, right? So there is the sort of obvious piece. But I think this connectedness goes beyond that to a, a, an intersection between psychological wellness and the rest of our physiology, which impacts stress is going to tie into that and impacts the, the biology of aging. But we don't understand it. Like that's probably the least understood of this intersection with, with the biology of aging and wellness. Sleep is kind of next up on that least understood list. Sleep is an area though, where I think there are real opportunities to learn a ton in the near future about how sleep quality impacts the biology of aging. So I didn't really answer your question other than, there's two other things I would say about this. One is, and this is a generalization I know, but, but there's a lot of truth to it. Men are way worse at connectedness than women are. So I think for, for men, you know, middle-aged men, and, and I would, Obviously, I'm a middle-aged man. I'd put myself in this bucket too. This is, if I had to look at my four pillars, that's the one I'm probably weakest in. And I think this is something that men in particular, we need to pay more attention to it and, and figure out ways to help each other with this one, because it's, it's really hard for a lot of men to be healthy in that area of their, their life. The other thing though I would say is, again, we got to be a little bit careful about one size fits all solutions here. And you know, not everybody needs the same level of connectedness, right? And I don't know if that, some of it's going to be genetic, some of it's going to be our life experiences, but we don't want to try to force people <laughs> to have relationships. But I do think for most people, it, it is something where there is room for improvement. From a bare minimum standpoint, I know you said this this area is under-researched and needs more and that we shouldn't be like pushing, um, you know, one method on everybody, but just based on maybe your own experience, talking to people, the research you have seen in, in general, what would you say are like some of the minimums people should try to do every week as far as socializing to, to improve their, their overall health? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I guess I would say I don't have, this is, this is an area where I have yet to really develop uh, what I would consider a protocol. Like, I, again, I'm a little bit uncomfortable right now saying you need to have X number of social interactions a week, right? What I would say more generally is um, I think everybody can find value in taking a look at their, their relationships today and asking yourself a few questions, right? Like how many, how many relationships do I have where I really know that I can count on this person, right? Like what, and again, this idea of what is a true friend? I don't, I mean, that, that's hard to say, but like how many relationships do you have? And does it go beyond your spouse if you have a spouse? So I think, again, for a lot of men, we tend to put that relationship on our spouse and we neglect relationships with other men that are very strong bonds of friendship, right? So you, I think we can all take a look at our lives and ask, you know, how many really strong relationships do I have outside of my, you know, spouse and kids maybe or parents? Um, so that's one thing you can do. And then I think, uh, you know, trying to take steps to find activities that you can engage in, right? And again, this is going to be different for different people. Maybe it's a social group playing cards. I don't know. At the community center. You know, maybe it's a softball league, right? Finding opportunities outside of your household and your work where you can have interactions with, with people who are, you know, at the same stage of life that you are, um, I think is, is something that people can do. But, you know, again, it's really, um, this I think is probably the hardest one for me at least to, 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 to settle on solutions that are, are going to fit everyone. Right. No, I appreciate your honesty on, on all of that. And I think, I mean, I'd love to, with that said, like, just, just chat for a few minutes on sleep because, I think it's no secret that sleep is so important. I mean, it's so every, I think, I think most people, I mean, I think almost everybody knows at this point that sleep is paramount for overall health and longevity, stress management, everything. What might not be as understood is that I, from what I've learned just through talking to sleep experts and people who study sleep is that the quality is much more important than, than quantity. It's like that being, getting quality sleep is definitely much more valuable than just laying in bed for eight hours, right? Sure. What are your thoughts on that? And then like, what is it about quality of sleep that 
that helps improve overall health and lifespan? So first of all, I think you're right. Quality of sleep is probably more important than 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 quantity. Although I would say what you said is true. If you're just laying in bed awake, <laughs> then that's not useful, particularly from a sleep perspective. But again, I would say it's hard for people, unless you've got a really good sleep tracker, it's often hard for people to know if they're getting good quality sleep. So, so I would say quantity of sleep is a good proxy for quality of sleep, as long as you're actually asleep and not laying in bed awake, just, just to leave it at that. So, so Couple, couple other things to say. One is why is sleep important? I mean, we're still learning, right? This is an area that's been understudied for sure is this interaction between the biology of aging and sleep. And what I would say is um, it's bi-directional. What I mean by that is that the quality of sleep impacts your biology of aging. Uh, and as we get older, the, the declines in function throughout the rest of our body and particularly in certain regions of the brain impact our ability to get high quality sleep. So it's almost a vicious cycle in that way. Um, but there's a lot to be learned there. One of the things we know is that sleep is important for the brain's ability to kind of reset itself and remove some of the damage that accumulates right at a molecular level. So that seems pretty clear. There's been a lot of research there that while we sleep, that there are mechanisms in the brain that help kind of detoxify the brain and remove that damage from the brain and get it to other parts of the body. And so when you're not getting high quality sleep, that doesn't happen as efficiently. And that seems to then lead to a greater risk of declines in brain function, neuronal loss, dementia in some people over over time. So that that's probably the most important biological or at least the most um, studied uh, biological reason why we sleep. Although I would suggest it's probably not just the brain, that it's probably other parts of the body that also need get those benefits from from sleep. Certainly, you know, it's kind of obvious that the, the the muscular system is able to to undergo healing uh, just from disuse, not being used as you sleep. Too much disuse obviously is detrimental, but we need a period of time each day where we're not actively on our muscles or using our muscles or our bones or skeleton. So I think there's probably benefits outside of the brain as well from sleep. But but that's th that's an area again where there's lots of research happening, and there need there needs to be more because we really don't understand it very well. Quality though of sleep, this is an area too that I think is 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 still. Uh, uh, expanding and and look, I'm not a sleep expert, so 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 I don't want to I don't want to say anything that that's that's too uh, critical. Other than to say, it's my impression that it's still pretty poorly understood, even what we mean by quality of sleep. So if I had to guess, five years from now, we may actually have a somewhat different definition of what quality of sleep means than we do today. There are some trackers. Aura Ring is one of the more popular ones that can give you a perspective on sort of real-time quality of sleep. I've used an Oura Ring. I'm not wearing mine right now, but but I've used one um, quite a bit. Uh, I think that can be useful for some people, but I would say also, again, this is where you need to kind of know yourself. Try it, see if it works for you. There are some people who wear an Oura Ring and it actually causes them to sleep more poorly because they're like worried about the score they're going to get the next day. Right. So, so you kind of have to, you know, you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot by using these devices, but I do think, you know, there is probably some value in understanding what are some of the, the things that can impact your quality of sleep. And again, the, we're going to come back to alcohol. So the one thing I learned from my aura ring is that, and I, everybody I've talked to who's done this experiment will, has told me the same thing alcohol trashes your quality of sleep, at least as measured by the aura ring. Although I have to admit, I have had a little bit of suspicion that maybe the people who developed the aura ring don't like alcohol and they designed the algorithm to give you a bad score. Now, I, I, I actually believe alcohol probably does trash your quality of sleep. But to, for me, that was, the, that was the thing that was the most potent at trashing my sleep quality. Even one, one glass of wine before I go to bed trashes my sleep quality. The other thing that trashes sleep quality is travel. I, that's, I, that's not true for everyone, but I think for most people, that's pretty much a universal. I, I guess the way that I also understand it, and, and maybe correct me if, if, if you think that I'm wrong or that you, maybe this is misleading, that I, I think that you know, getting good quality of sleep is essentially just making sure you're going through every stage of the, sleeps, of the sleep cycle because each cycle has different benefits for your health. I think that's true. I think, um, you know, there, there are certain metrics around amount of time that you spend in deep sleep and, and REM sleep. And, but again, this is an evolving field. And so that's why I, I kind of 
as a, somebody who's not in that field, it's my perception that we may have sort of different standards five years from now than we have right now for what we really mean by by quality of sleep. And then in terms of, of, of how you accomplish that, I mean, I think that's the real challenge, right? So sure, everybody gets that sleep's important. What do you do about it if you're not sleeping well? And that's where, again, this to me is a, that this is a tougher, this is a tougher pillar than food and exercise. I think food and exercise, I'm not saying they're easy. They're not, obviously. Lots and lots of people struggle with food and exercise, but we know what to do, right? It's not a matter of not knowing what to do. It's a matter of actually getting people to do it. Sleep is a bit more challenging. And this idea of good sleep hygiene, there's a lot of value there, but that's not going to fix the problem for everyone. So I think that there are some you know, there's more work to be done in figuring out what are some tips that we can give people who do practice, you know, what would be considered good sleep hygiene, going to bed at the same time every night, you know, not doing a lot of screen time right before you go to bed, all the stuff that gets talked about. But there are still some people who struggle with sleep. And so, you know, how do we, how, what are some additional solutions we can take to help people improve their sleep quality? I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. But it seems like the biggest things we should focus on are diet, exercise, healthy relationships. And again, doing all of this to where, how it fits within our, the current context of our lifestyle, our goals, our situation. And, and, and Matt, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all of your wisdom, your knowledge and all on all of this, because I think it can get a bit confusing at times. If people want to connect with you, they want to learn more about what you're doing um, and and the work that you have coming up. Where's the best place to do that? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at M Caberline, um, also on LinkedIn. Those are probably the easiest places to find me right now. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And um, Matt, I want to thank you once again for coming on. I think the audience is going to get a lot out of this one. Great. Thank you.